Dr. Peter McCullough. Welcome to Shoreditch, kind of. How's it going? Whereabouts are you based? I'm based in Dallas, Texas. I'm an academic physician here. I practice internal medicine, cardiology. I'm also trained in epidemiology. So I spend about half my time in patient care, about half my time uh, as an author and editor in clinical research. So today is a non-clinical day, although I'll call, I'll have a bunch of patient calls today. Uh, I'm uh, you know, able to give an interview uh, here and there. It's great to be on the program. No, honestly, thanks. Um, when, when we all saw um, uh, your podcast with Joe Rogan, I think, well, I think the entire planet saw it who have internet, which was pretty cool. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I thought I'd get in touch and, you know, get you in front of uh, the UK as much as we can. Um, I mean, you don't really need an introduction. Um, you did a little one there, but uh, I know you don't have long. So um, one of my questions is, uh, because I, obviously over here, it's the same boat as you guys. Um, the CDC director just came out and uh, did a video on one of the news channels saying that 75% of um, COVID deaths had at least four comorbidities. Is that true? That's true. That's true. The CDC has actually had on their website that um, that about 90% have have at least one serious illness that could lead to death. And I think the average age of death is about 83. So 75% having four conditions makes sense. And, you know, I was on national TV yesterday and asked about that. And, you know, one example would be our former uh, Secretary of State, Colin Powell. Uh, you know, he died with terminal multiple myeloma. He uh, was triple vaccinated, uh, didn't make a difference. He had, you know, COVID-19 at the end. So you know, whether he died of COVID-19 or multiple myeloma, no one made a big deal out of it. But the, the point is, uh, that, you know, those are the victims in a sense of COVID-19. Uh, meaning that, let, let's just say in the United States, 10% the mortality was exclusively driven by uh, COVID-19. Is that fraction, if we have 800,000 deaths, is that fraction of roughly 80,000 deaths that would have been completely uh, avoidable? And then uh, in uh, Italy, for instance, they've recoded their deaths. They, they've concluded that 97% of their deaths, because they have an older population, had other significant contributors. Uh, so the the point is, COVID nineteen is striking the the frail and the elderly. We know who needs early treatment. We know who would need protection from a safe vaccine, an effective vaccine, if indeed uh, it worked. So uh, you know, the, the COVID nineteen is amenable to risk stratification, but not everybody needs treatment, and certainly not everyone should consider a vaccine because they're simply not at risk for death. That's crazy. Um, for anyone that doesn't know what a comorbidity is, what's a, a few examples of of what they are? biggest ones is obesity. That's easy to understand. Diabetes, uh, heart disease like heart failure or heart blockages, prior bypass surgery, lung disease such as emphysema or asthma, uh, prior cancers, particularly solid organ cancers like lung cancer, uh, kidney cancer, uh, myeloma, uh, bone marrow cancer, breast cancer uh, as an example. Chronic kidney disease, patients on dialysis, that's a a large group. Uh, Those are all considered comorbidities. That's crazy. Um, I also saw a report in America. Um, I don't know if anything has come out over here, but it says um, there's a 40% increase in deaths between 18 to 64-year-olds. Is that true as well? That report hit multiple news wires. It comes from actuarial data uh, regarding uh, what the actuaries are anticipating or seeing with respect to death rates, and they concluded in those reports that it wasn't COVID-19, the respiratory illness. 
So the only other thing that the population was exposed to in the last year was the vaccine. And so it's really raising a question about whether or not there's a cause and effect of mass vaccination and having a, a skyrocketing mortality. You know, even, even a 4% increase in actuarial mortality would, would have been cataclysmic in the actuarial world, but a 40% rate is astronomical. Yeah, that it, it's almost unbelievable. It's that big. It, you almost can't put, get your head around it. Like when I first saw it, I didn't. I was like forty percent. I, I I don't know what the figure is normally, but I mean that's like that's just insane, isn't it? Like, how, when will we be able to? I I remember seeing something about that they won't release data for seventy five years, and then I just saw memes all over the internet about how come they you know, and then I saw a report saying that there's something in about eight months or something like that. Is is that changing? Will there be more data coming out and? Oh the whole thing scares the crap out of me, if I'm honest with you. Like, what, what's well, coming out now? If we take the issue of death after vaccination, just, just take that issue. Um, in our U.S. CDC VAERS system, they receive uh, initial reports. Or they get temporary VAERS number. Then the CDC verifies that, in fact, they've died, and they give them a permanent VAERS number. Our, our current number of deaths is uh, over 21,000 deaths that have occurred in the U.S. CDC VAERS system. About half are domestic, half are ex-U.S. outside of the United States. Uh, we have, that's the current number. Uh, in the early summer, we had a CMS, Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, whistleblower lawsuit that based the death count uh, due to the vaccines from uh, data where they knew the vaccines were administered in this uh, federal database, and they knew what time the patient died. So, you know, patients who died close in time were counted. The estimate early in the summer of you know, this last year was 45,000 Americans had lost their life to the vaccine. Now a paper out of Columbia by Panta Zatos and colleagues using uh, census data and vaccine administrative data estimate that number could be as high as 178,000 people have died after the vaccine. Now analyses by uh, McLaughlin and Rose early on in April of 20. Uh, 21 uh, demonstrated that 86% of the time there's no other explanation outside of taking the vaccine and they've died. We know the deaths occur, 50% occur within 48 hours and 80% occur within a week. So they're very, very closely related in, in time. Uh, but these numbers are large. If, uh, if the uh, Seligman and Pantazato's paper is correct, you know, 178,000 Americans, that's bigger than the, uh, you know, the 80,000 who directly died of COVID. And, and we see this in newsreels. I was on uh, Chris Saucedo news show uh, about a month ago, and they had a story running in Taiwan where they had more deaths due to the vaccine each day in Taiwan than they had COVID deaths. So this is a phenomenon all over the world. Yeah, it's absolutely insane. I feel like every day it's just the, the numbers that are coming out, it's just getting worse. Um, I actually saw a video of the um, CEO of Pfizer. I actually shared it on my Twitter, actually. Um, where he talks about um, the first two doses of the uh, uh, vaccine not being very effective. Um, have you seen the video? Well, I haven't, but I'm glad there is a review because the vaccine efficacy, even in the randomized trials, uh, you know, for, with the legacy variants, was basically uh, against the outcome of respiratory illness, the simple kind of common cold manifestations of COVID-19 at home. In the clinical trials program and in the FDA regulatory documents, there never was any hint of a reduction in hospitalization and death 
due to COVID-19. And since that time, we've seen very biased data on hospitalization. Uh, and in fact, in the last few days, there's been a whole variety of stories in the United States that a large fraction, if not the majority of the hospitalizations claimed for COVID-19 are not due to COVID-19 at all. It's just patients who are testing positive. They're coming in for other reasons. And so uh, I don't think at this point in time we can trust hospitalization data for vaccine efficacy. We simply can't. If it's not randomized, we can't trust it. So any claim that the vaccines reduce hospitalization can't be taken uh, as valid because we just, it's just that uh, these hospitalizations have to be adjudicated and they're not. But in terms of mortality, we do have some data. Uh, we have the 1040 paper in JAMA uh, from the IV network showing of those fully vaccinated in the hospital, the mortality was between 6 and 7%. And those unvaccinated in the hospital, the mortality was between 8 and 9%. That was not statistically uh, significantly different, but there was a numeric difference. And then we have a paper by Cohn and colleagues from the Veterans Administration showing that uh, over age 65, there was an absolute 12-point difference in survival curves for those uh, who are COVID positive. But under 65, there's only a 1% absolute difference in survival. So the uh, effect of the vaccines uh, is very modest and appears to be fleeting. We have emerging papers from Young Zhu and colleagues published in JAMA with the Delta variant that the coverage of the vaccines for Delta was only 20%. And now with Omicron, we have data from the UK uh, report, the variant report, as well as a paper from Denmark from Hansen and colleagues showing with Omicron the vaccines are basically completely ineffective. Um, I mean, that doesn't surprise me. Um, you know, when you talk about the UK, it, it, are we partly to blame for the, all the figures and all the fear? Because I remember when the, all this first started and we, we were turning, we turned the Excel, which is a huge exhibition centre, absolutely huge in London into like a, a a hospital for like you know it turns out I think 40 people went in there out of 4,000 or something that could have all those things that we set up we never even used them I mean it, you know all the fear that was going on over here like I'm pretty um, pretty mellow when it comes to things I'm you know I, I critical think I always ask questions and I you know I always wait um, even I was like crap in myself I was worried like you know you'd, you'd see all these hospitals and stuff that would get but they never got used is it, when I, I watch your podcast is it our figures that were part of the problem in the UK and if so who who, who were the ones that created all these figures you know the governments uh, tried to in pandemic response try to get a grip on, over test positivity hospitalization and death and they never did it the hospitalizations needed to be adjudicated or coded for a respiratory illness, and they never got hospitalizations. I published a series of uh, opinion editorials in The Hill last year, a, a Washington Journal, making that point that, you know, the only thing that matters is hospitalization and death. If people have a, a respiratory head cold at home, that's, that should, that's a non-issue. Uh, and so they never got uh, hospitalization and death as a composite. Uh, they used models, the UK and the US used models that were assuming asymptomatic spread. There were papers published, you know, 30 to 50% of spread is asymptomatic. Uh, you know, if SARS-CoV-2 spread asymptomatically, it would be the first uh, organism in the history of medicine that transmitted asymptomatically. It just, it, it would have been this brand new thing that broke all the rules in microbiology so uh, and viral epidemiology. So we knew that wasn't the case. So when these models 
suggested we're going to be overwhelmed with patients. Like you pointed out, in the UK, there was this overreaction. In Dallas, they took the Dallas County Convention Center, they turned it into an army hospital. They had uh, hundreds, if not thousands of cots, ventilators, IV, all these medics. And I, I, you know, I published, I told America, listen, I'm right here. They're not going to use a single bed in that uh, relief hospital, the convention center. It's true. They didn't use a single one. So the pandemic response was way off base because they were relying on faulty statistics and relying on modeling. And they, they weren't relying on common sense. Common sense tells us that a symptomatic patient has to transmit it to a susceptible patient. That's how infectious disease work it doesn't asymptomatic spread uh doesn't happen yeah um yeah so i've been researching i see that see the same thing because a lot of people we we were told on the news that asymptomatic people can still spread it so everyone was scared nobody you know saw so you know i just think my grandma died during the the um during the pandemic and only 30 of us got to go um to the funeral i think a few more did actually um because they were like whatever but but all these things that happened, I mean, I'm one of millions of people. Um, it's, I think when we look back, I mean, even now when we look back, it, it's like, I think there's a lot of anger. Like, it's, you know, and I, 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 you know, I, I've not been affected by anyone that's died of COVID in my family or anything like that. But when I look back at all, all, those, um, all those videos of uh, these made-up hospitals, all this kind of stuff, and, you know, it's it, it, it's a bit like when they print money. It's a couple of people that print the money, and you know, like wreck the economy. And it's it seems like a couple of people or a group, a small group of people, got to choose and go with these models. It's affected like billions of people, and um, if it all comes out that it's all they were completely m- way off, it's like who's gonna who? Someone needs to pay for this, surely. That's true. Uh, you know, one of my institutions I trained at for internal medicine was the University of Washington. And there was a model for COVID-19. It's called the Murray model out of the University of Washington. They used to have uh, Dr. Murray on uh, national TV, on CNN, for instance, and he'd be predicting all these, uh, uh, you know, um, waves of hospitalization and death. And it was completely off base because of this assumption of asymptomatic spread. So historians will record. I'm so glad I never made statements that were found to be so completely uh, incorrect. I've been staying on the issues of early treatment to prevent hospitalization and death. And then I have been very careful in terms of evaluating vaccine safety and efficacy. Everyone should know there's no single product that's perfectly safe and effective. None. So the vaccines, the vaccines should always be presented with fair balance, that there are risks and benefits. They have to. They, there's not a single official in the UK that can come out and say they're safe and effective taking a vaccine. They can't do that. They have to present the risks and the benefits. Uh, it's called the Murray model, the, the University of Washington Murray model. You'll see that uh, all over the internet. And um, we'll, we'll leave links to everything you said uh, in the description. Um, just going off those models, right, so if those models predicted, like, the amount of fear that we had and all these hospitals were built up, all this kind of stuff, I mean, they must have pred- predicted of millions of deaths. When it, with the actual number now, minus 75%, which they're admitting to, which is probably more for court, uh, for comorbidities. Like, how off were they? Like, like ten thousand percent? I don't like how. I mean, 
I, I can't get my head around it. I can't believe. We, we had CDC estimates that we were going to lose 2.1 million American lives. I mean, they're out there. Uh, you know, our total number is over 800,000. But what we realized is that it's a large fraction that are have multiple near-terminal illnesses. So it looks like COVID-19 played a, way, a, a role in accelerating the pathway to death, but it was a short pathway. Uh, but we could have, I think, with early treatment across the board, including those with comorbidities, we could have reduced the risk of hospitalization and death easily by 85%. I put that in Senate testimony in March of 2021. And I think now with monoclonal antibodies, more sophisticated use of our drugs, we understand the dosing of ivermectin, for instance. We have the new Merck and Pfizer uh, pills. I think we could easily prevent uh, 95% of hospitalizations and deaths. So the hospitals are, we have the largest outbreak of COVID-19 we've ever had right now. The hospitals are not overwhelmed. No. Okay. Just so, just so we have those numbers, they predicted 2, 2 million, 2.1, call it 2 million. The actual, the amount of death, the death toll currently is 800,000 minus 75% what they're admitted to, which is 200,000. So they actually predicted 10 times more deaths than actually happened that they're admitting to. And they didn't use any early treatment. And on top of that, people have died. It's known people have died from the vaccine. So if you 200,000 people have actually died of COVID and say 41,000 people have died from the vaccine, then what's that? 20% of the amount of COVID deaths have been on top of that have been caused by a vaccine, which wouldn't have been created at all if this wouldn't have happened in the first place. That's a fair analysis. I mean, there are basically two risks of death, the respiratory illness and the vaccine. Those are the two kind of imminent threats. That's like, I just, I can't get my head around it. I, I, my mum, my mum's 75 and she, um, she ended up in hospital because she got COVID. Um, and th- they didn't do anything. They literally made her wait at home until she got to a point where her breathing was so bad. And then she went to hospital and then she was fine like four hours later. But I just remember thinking like, like it doesn't make any sense the way this is being dealt with. <coughs> Has it been the same in the in the US where they just they stopped any early treatment? Yeah, it's been very intentional. There was intentional blockade originally of hydroxychloroquine in the first year. Very intentional blockade of ivermectin. Uh, can you let me feel this? Uh, for instance, the American Medical Association in September this year launched a campaign, a public campaign, to abolish the use of ivermectin. Now, the American Medical Association is not a treating organization. They don't do clinical practice guidelines. They don't have any expertise in opining on medicine. Uh, but yet they uh, took took this a charge to abolish the use of ivermectin. Well, ivermectin is first line just south of us in Mexico, across to South America, India, Japan. I mean, why would a political action group in the United States, the American Medical Association, want to take up this charge? They're closely aligned with the American Board of pharmacy and the pharmacist uh, felt it you know basically empowered to block ivermectin to the population uh, we've seen blockade of budesonide of colchicine uh, other drugs that we use to treat COVID-19 we've seen uh, ineffective deployment of monoclonal antibodies when we really need them from the very beginning and not a single leader has gotten out uh, to the American public or worldwide and said that the governments fully support doctors treating patients early 
with all the available medicines to prevent hospitalization and death. No leader has given a full-throated endorsement of doctors doing all they can to help patients. None. That's crazy. Um, over over in the UK, we were told that um, originally that the vaccine was a hundred percent like would it, you you can never catch COVID, um, you could never transmit it, um, uh, and it would stop people dying from it. We now know that you can still get COVID, you can still transmit, it and people have died from it. But a lot of people, and you know, um, I actually put on Instagram um, if anyone's got any, a question for you then let me know and I'll ask you. Um, and one of the questions was, I think it was a young guy, probably like early 20s, um, who, who doesn't want to have it, I don't think. Um, people, people say, well, um, it's, I got COVID, even though they've been triple jabbed, double jabbed and a booster. Um, and they go, well, it stopped me from ending up in the hospital. But for me, it's like, how do you even prove that? You know, how, how do you even prove that? So what do you say to people that say, well, I got COVID and I didn't go to hospital because of my, my booster jab. I don't think they would have gone to the hospital anyway. We, we actually have very good tools now. The Cleveland Clinic has got a hospitalization prediction calculator. So you can type in your age and your medical problems and figure out your chances of going into the hospital. Uh, as I mentioned before, I think the hospitalization data are all biased by, based on differential testing and selection bias. So there are no randomized trials showing that the vaccines reduce hospitalization or death. Not at all. In fact, there's slightly excess deaths in the Pfizer um, randomized trial uh, vaccine regulatory uh, um, briefing booklet than there are uh, deaths in the placebo. So I, I just think the hospitalization data are just too biased. I know they're being leveraged by stakeholders to try to make the case that the vaccines reduce hospitalization, but I I don't think that's the case. And e even if the vaccines actually had a re you know favorable effect reducing hospitalization and death, we know those who, def who did not take the vaccine, which is very few, by the way, it's very few people in the UK have not taken the vaccine, very few people in the United States. But even if they chose not to take the vaccine and they were hospitalized, that was their own trade-off. Uh, there's an analysis by Kostoff and colleagues showing that, let's say at age 65, one is uh, far more likely to die after the vaccine than ever die with COVID-19, the respiratory illness. So if that's a, a consequence of, of foregoing the vaccine and having a hospitalization and surviving it, that's one's own choice to do that. There was somebody in my circles recently who didn't want to take the vaccine. He was obese and had some medical problems, and he did end up getting hospitalized. He probably had Delta, and he was in the hospital for about five days, and he went home. It's okay. That's his choice. Uh, but what he did is he avoided the risk of death with the vaccines, and you can't blame him. Um, amazing. There's, there's, a, there's a doctor that went viral a few days ago in the UK. I don't know if you saw the video, but he was talking. Um, uh, he's a doctor in, in hospital, um, and he was saying that it's just not feasible to um, uh, jab because they're talking about sacking over 100,000 NHS staff, which is like everyone's not happy about that, obviously, um, because they're refusing the jab. Um, he was saying that, the jab only lasts for eight weeks and it wanes after four. So you'd have to jab staff every four weeks just so that they've got some kind of protection. And he said, it's just not feasible. Um, did you see that video of that doctor? No, I didn't, but I agree with those conclusions. It's not feasible. The vaccines at the bare minimum have to last a year. Otherwise we could never have a cohesive 
vaccine program. So vaccines that last a month or three months or six months are just not viable. So the vaccine should be dropped. Uh, the, NIH, uh, the NHS can't afford uh, to lose uh, valuable people. And we know the vaccines don't stop transmission. Uh, there's a paper by Keener and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, from the University of California at San Diego and they showed that with Delta, there's actually more Delta infections in vaccinated healthcare workers than unvaccinated. A paper by Singarajam and colleagues showed that 39% of transmission is fully vaccinated to fully vaccinated. So the NIH, the National Health Service trying to va vaccinate their population is basically a foolhardy approach. It doesn't accomplish anything. There have not been large hospital outbreaks of COVID-19 in the National Health Service. Uh, there hasn't been any cre credible, you know, healthcare worker to patient spread outside of nursing homes. So, I, you know, I think now is a good time to drop all the vaccine mandates, uh, pause all the vaccines. And then uh, if we have safer vaccines come in, such as a Novavax vaccine, uh, that's a pure antigen-based vaccine, we could consider a booster program, maybe for nursing home residents, high-risk seniors and nursing home workers. But nothing beyond that. I think mass vaccination has been basically just a disaster. You know, we're nearly at the end of the uh, time. Uh, maybe I'll have time for one more quick question. Well, my, my podcast is called The British Entrepreneur, and I talk to entrepreneurs and um, f people like that have done really well in their industries. Um, so, I mean, the question is, who, who's making all the money from all this? You, you know, a good book that outlines the web of people profiting is called COVID-19 and the Global Predators. We Are the Prey. The first author is Peter Bregan. And uh, this outlines really the complex web between the pharmaceutical manufacturers, the government agencies, uh, the vaccine consortiums. Uh, but there is a lot of mo money flowing, and it's certainly flowing from federal governments now. There's actually a lot of money flowing from federal or government sources to implementation sites like healthcare systems and clinics uh, in order to encourage mass vaccination. It's called regulatory capture. Uh, there's a lot of federal funds that come with FAQs that basically indicate uh, that these organizations must support uh, vac vaccination. So we actually have physician colleges like the American College of Physicians, American College of Pediatrics and Gynecology that's completely, uh, 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 in a sense, committed uh, through this regulatory capture to an ill-advised uh, mass vaccination program. I'm going to have to let that be the last comment. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, thanks, Pia. And look, like I said, um, we'll leave it. I'll get the links from you for everything that you mentioned in the description. And okay. anytime you come to London, like I said, got a place for you to stay. We'll continue this in the studio here. And um, thank you so much from everyone in the UK for what you've already done and what you're doing. We really appreciate it. And um, I wish you all the best. Okay. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye.